It's the end of the world, again, whether it's a zombie outbreak, nuclear war, alien invasion, or just some unspecified terrible event, it seems that we all love a good apocalypse. I recently attended BristolCon, uh, where one of the panels discussed just this subject. I've got a full convention report on the way for the podcast, with interviews with authors, organisers and attendees, which should be ready in a couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that. But first of all, I'd like to thank the organisers of BristolCon and all the members of the panel for letting me record this uh, discussion. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I was in the audience and I hope you'll enjoy it too. Just a couple of quick notes. is One, the audio quality isn't quite as good as I might have hoped, uh, but hopefully you'll still be able to hear it and it'll still be really interesting. Secondly, I wasn't able to get permission from everyone for the questions asked from the audience towards the end of the panel. So I've had to edit a few of those out. Though I've left in some answers when you can kind of work out what's being talked about about from what the panel said. So here we are. It's the end of the world. Enjoy! Apocalypses. How many ways can we destroy the planet? <laughs> ah. As some of you will know, I was, or oh, indeed still am, a judge for the Odyssey Clark Awards. Um, and last year's reading did leave me with, oh look, it's the end of the world again. <laughs> um, I did end up feeling a bit like the whale in that well-known uh, apocalyptic <laughs> world of literature, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh no, not you. <laughs> Science fiction at the moment does seem to have lost a lot of its optimism. Um, dystopia, grim futures. Um, it's the end of the world as we know it, we're adding to tech. Seems to be the order of the day. Um, why? So, let us explore that between us after a little while and see if we can find a few positive, um, amid all the doom, gloom, destruction and zombies. <laughs> so, we will start off by introducing ourselves. I am your moderator this afternoon. I, I don't write near future tech science fiction. I write epic fantasy, sorts of sorcery, wizardry, dragons, and dirty work at crossroads. I'm going to read some of So, on my left is Dominic. And. Is that Jack Blackburn? Thomas. Thomas Blackburn. Somebody Blackburn. Um, so, you write near, near future, far future, extremely far future. Catastrophes. Um, yes, and yes, how much do you want to say right now? Well, just talk. Yeah. If you were at the guest monitor <coughs> earlier, you know a bit about that. I, I'm going to write lots of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I write uh, Very Far Future Space Opera, which is, um, I hope, hard SF. Um, I've written uh, a couple of books, Bones on the Dark Blood. Which is which are in the states are actually marketed as dark fantasy. Mm. They're police procedurals in a strange alternate Earth. Um, although, if you know your astronomy, uh, you'll know from book two that actually it, that there's kind of an alternate Earth, and the turning point was um, between four and five billion years ago. So you have to be clued clued up to pick up on that one. Um, and yes, I've written um, a couple of near future thrillers as Thomas Blackthorn, um, and I guess they're dystopian. I think the characters. 
get on with their lives, so I don't think the characters are too depressed. Um, but yes, the environment's in a dreadful state in those books. <laughs> Tell these good people who you are and what you like. I'm Janet Edwards, and my debut book was out from Harper Voyager this August. It's science fiction for young adults and adults with a sense of fun. It's called Earth Girl. Tim Morn, I'm uh, a fiscal based writer. Um, I write very near future, very near future, in that it might even be present, it's never quite sure, uh, <laughs> science fiction, um, which I, some people have described as dystopian. I, I, I don't agree with it being dystopian, I think it's realistic. Maybe <laughs> 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 I'm a horrible cynic, but I, you know, I, I grew up under a Tory government, and here we are again. Uh, I, um, I, I just wrote my, the last thing I had published was in Arc magazine, which is the new scientist thing that's just started, and um, it is it was about, um, for example, because we're talking about this, it was about the riots last year in London and across the country, in Bristol, but. Um, and I, I was trying to use science fiction as a way to sort of unpick and, and uh, examine what had gone on there. And I don't think that's... It's, it's very easy to look at imagery like that and, and say that's a dystopian. Um, but maybe there's actually positive things. Mm. Uh, I'm Mike. I do a lot of local charity work in Bristol. And in my spare time, I sort of world build. I attempt to write science fiction and debate with people the... The, the fun bits. I, I like distant sci-fi mostly because it allows me to take the rules out of the world and focus purely on the humans. It lets people and psychology do the work and, and the world craft and they can do whatever they like because the technology allows them to do. And I like thinking and investigating what sort of worlds and societies that creates. And do you generally have an optimistic view of the far future? Um, bits of it can be optimistic. I like to explore lots of different concepts at the same time. So some of the worlds that I craft will tend to try, there'll be little bits of them exemplify different lines of thought and different bits of psychology. So you'll have some cultures mm. where everything is totalitarian, there's a happy upper class and miserable lower class, and some cultures that are quite utopian but obviously doomed to die, and others that are dystopian and might have sacrificed their freedoms and rights, but might actually be better survive for the long term. So it's about looking at all the different possibilities and in the same setting, so there's always a sign for the reader to cheer for it. That's something that I'm That's very interesting, actually, because that would be something that I see in your work that you have that broad spectrum of the positive, the constructive, <laughs> and instances where it's all gone horribly wrong. Um, and I mean, the, the world building that's strongest in my mind in terms of my own books is. Is actually the world accredited for um, it's, it's 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 the trilogy that nobody can pronounce. Uh, Nal Aperol, um, uh, it's paradox, context, and resolution, um, uh, and, and that's fresh in my mind because my current trilogy spans um, it overlaps that time period. So I'm actually going back to a book I wrote ten years ago in my mind, and uh, but a lot of it was deliberate. Um, you know, the images in my mind were to do with the fact that everyone lived underground. Um, and uh, because of the atmosphere initially, it hadn't been terraformed, and therefore I thought of strata. And you know, American reviewers said that only a British writer could write a book like this because it's just a very obvious metaphor that if you've got physical strata, you've got social strata as well. Um, and so I deliberately created um, an aristocracy um, and and a, and a working class hero from from one of the lower strata. But I deliberately mixed everything up. Um, the system is rotten but many of the aristocrats are good people. Um, and in fact, our working class hero um, 
his his best friend is 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 one of the aristocrats uh, and becomes a comes on um, and and um, d- again deliberately um, but it but my background on this was that there's an element of deliberate social engineering in, in, in the world setup so it's, and none of this happens by accident so it is no accident that there are 200 languages spoken on this world. Uh, it's no accident that there are different regions that have different political systems, although they tend to have stuff in common. Um, and um, when I introduced the notion of, um, you know, revolution, social revolution in the background, um, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm very much the opposite of a cynic, but I, but I also know that things tend to go wrong. So um, I, I deliberately made sure there was nothing, there was nothing simplistic about the social revolution. Um, I picked up on the fact from a particular historian um, I think it might have been Felipe um, uh, Fernandez Nistes, um, uh, but he pointed out some revolutions take place when when things have eased up, because if you're in a totalitarian state, you actually sometimes dare not rebel. So, in fact, the, the I guess I'd worked out all the background that in the previous decades the system had actually loosened up in, in the sector that you know the story set in, um, and there's revolution uh, fermenting, which our hero becomes involved in. But he comes to realise that the, the, the you know the revolution um, is just as self-centred and and, and 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 doomed to at least mediocrity and possibly worse. Uh, it's just as bad as the system it's replacing. So he actually uh, you know uh, he actually becomes a derelict and alcoholic temporarily um, in, in the first book, as where he actually it's just all his illusions have been taken away from him. Um, and yeah, it's totally totally deliberate. So, I mean, people talk about, uh, you know, the cock-up versus conspiracy theory of history. You actually have the cock-up versus conspiracy theory of the future, do you? I think so, absolutely. <laughs> Which I, I find very interesting reading Earth Girls on it, because um, you have an accidental apocalypse. which I found really interesting. Um, Humanity conquers the stars, so off they all go. Which is a bit lousy for people left behind for <laughs> very good reasons. I actually read the book; it's very entertaining and very well thought through. Um, which again is people being the architects of their own destruction entirely without thinking, you know, entirely by accident. Um, so, so what prompted you to write that? In, well, I think. Um, Earth Girl is set in the far future on Earth. So it's in the year 2788. And for me, it's realistic that civilizations don't just improve. Um, they don't just expand. Don't, you know, it's like economies. <laughs> Eventually, something goes wrong. And so, yeah, at some point over the next six or 700 years, something goes wrong. And in this case, it just fitted very naturally that what went wrong was people got too greedy, expanded too much. You know, they they didn't stop at a hundred million planets. They went on to five hundred. They overdid it. it. Everything just fell apart. So people did cause the collapse. And I suppose partly on influenced by the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was going really brilliantly for a long time, but eventually greed, over-expansion. Basically, they've got too much territory to keep following. So, so, yeah, I decided, what if you're going that far in the future, it's realistic that at some point, civilization had a collapse. It wasn't a total apocalypse. 
um, it very nearly was, but they're still picking up the pieces from it. Mm. So does, does your view of Apocalypse and Conspiracy all cock up? Um, cock up, mainly, <laughs> and a bit of conspiracy. I don't, I don't believe in conspiracies, I believe in cock ups. I guess it could be it, yeah, logical answer that. I, um, like the, the thing I was mentioned earlier about the riots, I think it was, it, 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 it ends as, in, in my book, it's both social injustice and consumerism. Now, I don't think anybody deliberately engineered both mm-hmm. things, even consumerism. I think that's an end result of capitalism running like the people only now maybe looking at and thinking, mm, maybe we should try and keep a, a lid on this somewhere. Um, it was something that I felt was swept under the carpet in the discussion of the riots last year. Mm-hmm. Um, these greedy people who are out to get things for themselves. Well, why do they want these things? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and, and why can't they get them through legitimate means? And, 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 and the, the thing I try to play on in this story actually is the idea of community, because there's a lot of talk about why are these people doing this in their own community? Why are they setting fire to their own community? Why are they smashing windows in their own community? Well, maybe they don't think of it as a community. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't think that's their own community. Shopping areas don't really feel like communal areas. They feel like areas that are made to make money and not necessarily from people that, that live there. The, 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 the money comes in and the money flows out. Um, it doesn't stick around a lot necessarily. Especially as we live in an era where we don't have much in the way of, of, of small businesses and we have large you know, multinational companies and brands and stuff. I don't know what this has to do about apocalypses, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it, it's kind of, it, it, I guess it's looking at, at capitalism and is there a crisis in capitalism, is, is that apocalyptic? Mm. I mean, what does that, what do we replace it with, what does it end, what, what does it leave us with, apart from, you know, a lot of stuff that we can't use. So, why is it more appropriate, why does there seem to be this urge of addressing socialisms through science and fantasy? Uh, well, actually, through science fiction, because you don't tend to get the apocalyptic fantasy fiction. I think, um, um, so for me, I, 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 it's a kind of poetic license. It's yeah. even, if I'd wanted to sit down and write like a 10,000 word story about the riots last year, yeah. about actually what happened in Tottenham and subsequent places, I wouldn't be in a position A to do that, B, I'd have to do a lot of research, and, and C, I'd feel kind of uncomfortable doing it because I wasn't directly involved. I, I would need to. In order for it to work, I would need to properly represent the people that were involved, hundred mm. percent. Otherwise, it would be an un, an untrue thing to do. You know, yeah. I mean, you know. Whereas, if I did science fiction, mm-hmm. even if it's set in, you know, even in like ten years' time, which my stuff is probably set, I I, I can then use that. It's science fiction. It's almost a get-out clause. I don't mean that in a kind of lazy, negative way. It's a way of going. Let's talk about these issues without worrying too much. About without bringing baggage, without exactly, bringing conceptions, exactly, without saying, "Oh yeah, but actually, yes, on exactly. this particular day, yeah. X happened." I mean, you can have these arguments and sort these arguments online and in the media during the riots. Mm. Someone says that, someone says that, and there's always a counter argument about people. And if you can kind of almost or culture, if you can kind of almost remove that and just look at the fair arguments from both sides, which I hopefully did in the story, mm. then you know, maybe so can achieve. For a reader, what? makes this not literature to slash your wrists to. 
Well, if we're looking at apocalyptic literature and what we get out of it, I think the first thing is perhaps education as to how not to make this happen. If somebody paints you a view of how people people doing stupid things destroys the world, you think, well, okay, if I ever get the opportunity, I won't do that series of stupid things. And secondly, I think it gives you a better insight into the sort of human condition and how people think. It's often said in, in times of crisis, in moments of desperation, that's when people show more truly who they are than any other time. And you get to see much better through the lies that we put up every day who we really are when it matters most. And I think writing apocalyptic, reading apocalyptic fiction gives us a much sharper picture of the human nature than it does any other point. And it allows us to be particularly true to that and to, to go right into the extremes and the deep ends and things that people would never do at any other time, except the world's ending tomorrow, so why not? Mm. Is that something that is consciously... Or even do you think subconsciously you're not a writer when I'm thinking of Thomas Blackmore books? Um, I mean, with the first one, Edge, um, there is this uh, yeah. blood soaked reality game show. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, were you watching X Factor and thinking if only they were yeah, there, I, there, I guess there are two elements in, in how I created the book. Uh, let me think about the elements first, and then kind of backtrack and yeah. how it becomes apocalyptic. Um, yeah, the immediate human one was actually driven by, yeah, this is reality TV show. It's basically uh, MMA, mixed martial arts, cage fighting with knives. Um, <clears throat> and why not? Um, and, uh, uh, and I thought about that uh, just because I wanted to explore a, a, an issue um, which I find interesting. It's not, not a hugely dominating issue in my life. Um, but uh, because I have family in the States, I'm aware that there's a very different, um, uh, a deep cultural um, attitude towards guns, more than, more than knives, of course. Um, because walking down the street armed with, with a knife and a gun in the States is perfectly legal, and they cannot see why it shouldn't be, many, many people. And, and we know this, and, and, um, and, uh, and I've actually used the term hoplophobia, um, which, is, which is a technical term I came across many years ago, it's a true term, which is the fear of weapons. And so you could argue um, that Britain is a hoplophobic society. Uh, I, I think uh, both uh, current um, um, United States and Britain, in many ways, are quite aggressive cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that one embraces firearms and the other one doesn't. So part of that was part of what was in my mind is, is what would it take to, you know, how would people's attitudes change? Would they look at a kind of gladiatorial combat as being primetime TV? Um, plus, I came across this, this rather worrying statistic. Um, which was, and I can't even remember which, which region of the country it was in, but it was something that nobody else commented on, um, because what it was pointing out, actually nobody pointed it out, you had to, to deduce from the figures that as in this particular area, as knife crime rose, general crime fell. Um, and then, you know, the pro-gun lobby in the States will talk about the towns where, there are small towns where basically everybody is armed unless they have a criminal record. And they don't do any burglaries. Surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, now I'm I'm much more aware of all the negative arguments uh, regarding firearms. Um, so that's absolutely not in our favour. But it's interesting. There's two sides of, of, of how things are viewed. So that was the uh, that was the, that was oh, I, I'm going to do that. Yeah, um, that's the, uh, the you know the little visual image, if you like, that uh, that, that can then spin a story. The background. Um, yeah, there's there's there's. There's climate collapse in the uh, in, in the story. That's you know spoiler, but okay. Um, <clears throat> there is um, there's a rigorous, a deeply rigorous scientific reason for thinking in these terms, and it's something that's changed in my lifetime, which is 
along with many other people's lifetimes in a row, but not everybody, um, because um, you know our perspective of the world. I think, if, if, you know, thinking as a scientist, is that chaos theory and complexity theory change the way that we view the world, and um, and you can make use of that. So, an example of chaos theory in use is if you know about chaos. Chaos really goes back to the nineteenth century, but people don't realise it. Um, sometimes you can model uh, a physical situation with a very simple equation. And many times with a simple equation, if you feed some numbers in, you get an answer out, so it can be a prediction that you can then check against reality. For example, weather. What's, what is it going to rain next Tuesday? And uh, sometimes when you feed uh, numbers in, you have to, you have to recognise this is a big, complicated world. None of our measurements are going to be exact. So there's always a bit of uncertainty in the measurement. So if you look at an equation, some equations, if you feed in a number, one set of numbers, and then a slightly different set of numbers, and traditionally you tend to think of, well, the output is just slightly different. Slightly different input gives you a slightly different output. But where chaos theory comes from is the recognition that even when you look at simple equations, sometimes a tiny variation in the input gives you a wildly different output, and that's behavior in a chaotic region. So... That's how weather forecasters know when they can say it will almost definitely rain next Tuesday, and other times they'll say, well, it might rain next Tuesday, and, and chances are about 5%, we don't really know. And the reason is that when they're certain, the equations that they're using to, that they think are the correct model, are in a stable state uh, within, if you, if you like, a mathematical space, because they will feed in slightly different numbers, the actual numbers that are their best guess from the the current measurements from their devices, but then they'll tweak the numbers a little bit and run it and run it and run it. And if the output is very similar, you're in a stable region. But if the output is 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 bouncing around all over the place, you're in a chaotic region. And therefore, as a forecaster, you know that um, you know you, your forecasts are not reliable. So so counterintuitively, you can use the concept of chaos in a very positive way. Now, complexity theory is slightly different, but complexity theory basically um, indicates that all complex systems can undergo sudden shifts in behavior, and they're referred to as phase transitions because it's very much like um, you take um, H2O um, molecules bound together in ice, look at them in liquid water, and, and you know, steam is actually condensed out vapor. Vapor, water vapor, liquid water, um, solid ice have got very, very different properties, but you change them from one to the other just like that. And the properties are emergent. There's no... The, the concept of a solid surface, that's an emergent property from the way the particular um, electrons and nuclei are, and so on are, are kind of arranged here. You know, it, it, it's emergent. It doesn't exist. If you looked at the individual atoms, the, the, the concept of a solid disappears. Of a surface, it disappears. And complex systems undergo phase transitions very, very quickly. That includes economies that can crash overnight. This that includes the global um, Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the things that I, I do see common to a lot of apocalyptic literature, is this notion that we are all living in very, in very brittle societies. Um, and you know, it is startling when you know, if the fuel depots are blockaded, you know, how, how very rapidly uh, there is no food on supermarket shelves. Yes, and, but you can make use, just as you can make use of chaos theory to know when your predictions are, are good or, or on shaky ground, you, 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 you can sometimes uh, see precursors to a phase transition. Mm. And what I'm appalled by is the fact that this is, this is simple. You know, you, 
you know, not everybody here has got a degree in maths or physics, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is very, very simple conceptually. Why don't people talk about this all the time in the news and in, 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 in the papers? Um, uh, some years back, the, the, the North Sea cod fishing industry collapsed pretty oh, much yeah. overnight. The, the cod population dropped by, I think, about 95% mm. in one season. Marine biologists were telling politicians that this was going to happen because there were precursor indicators. They knew the specific precursor indicator was that if you looked at the total weight of... Uh, fishermen tend to think in terms of weight, you know? It's, it's, it's back to capitalism again. How much, how much money are we going to make? Well, it's about five tonnes of fish. That will give me that, this, this amount of money. So fishermen were looking at the weight of the catch. What marine biologists were doing was looking at the average weight, the mean weight of the fish. And what they found was the mean weight was going down. What that meant was they were catching younger fish. And at some point, there was a critical number where they caught the fish before they, before they had a chance to breed. Mm. And suddenly there was no next generation. And that's your overnight crash. Mm. And they saw it coming, and nobody paid attention. And what I find even more worrying is the fact that all these years after the event, people still don't know that. Unless they read transcription. <laughs> <laughs> right! Yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, Janet, you're writing you know, what is labelled young adult science fiction, um, which to a certain extent is a relatively recent construct. You know, not so many decades ago, what you're writing would simply have been called science fiction. Um, do you feel that you are, you, you've given up on all of us grey haired? Um, people who've wrecked the world, are you trying to speak to the next generation in hopes that they might get it right? Oh, um, yeah, I suppose I'm trying to speak to the next generation and maybe make them think of it. But um, I wouldn't say I've given up on people with grey hairs. <laughs> actually, young adult uh, science fiction, young adult fiction in general has a much wider readership than the, the term young adults implies uh, mm. because the average age of a young adult reader is 25. <laughs> <laughs> my, you know, reading the reviews of my book, I can see that people who read this book who are as young as 11, mm. and but also there's people who say, I've been reading science fiction for 60 years. Mm. Mm. So it's got a wide, very wide readership. Uh, as you say, mm. there was a time when things were just called science fiction. It was juvenile science fiction. Yes. But, uh, no, young, young adult has a very wide readership. And one of the things that I find um, about books that are labelled young adult these days, both in science fiction and fantasy, is they absolutely can tackle what you might term adult concepts without what you would consider, quote, adult content. <laughs> um, and that, that should be the main distinction. Uh, you know, they're, they're in no sense sort of dumbed down, because frankly, I mean, as a mother of teenage sons, I would offer them a dumbed down book. I can imagine the content with which it would be received. Um, so, if we are trying to alert the next generation to the incipient uh, cod, and uh, other such global catastrophes. How do we avoid being too preachy? Because um, when I worked in book selling, one year I was actually on the committee <coughs> choosing the children's reading summer promotion. And so this was one of those wonderful exercises which you get 
70 books to read, and you have to read them all, and choose the six in different age categories. And some of them were dire, <laughs> because they were Henrietta Hippopotamus learns an improving lesson about how it's nice <laughs> to share your <laughs> And they were so patronising and so preaching. So how, if we are avoiding being apocalypses, being literature to slash do, um, how does it avoid being too greedy? And again, I will refer to the not the grey haired emperor. What book then for you in terms of, you know, creepiness and uh, um, what, what distinguishes a good apocalypse um, from a bad one? Well, I think it's a case of if you're writing a book that's just to get a point across then your book is about the point and it's not about the story. And what people as readers are reading is a good plot, a good story, a good text. If there's an apocalypse in the background, that's fine. Perhaps that makes the setting, the story, the tale, the moral. But if all you're doing constantly throughout the book is going, look at the apocalypse, it's bad, it's bad, look at this, it's your fault, don't do it. And people are going to read the book and be like, no. But if, it, if it's just there, if you let them join the dots for themselves, mm. that's the key that you're looking for there. You want the reader to do the work and to draw their own conclusions from the layout that you've provided. So the way to not be preaching is to not be preaching. Something you need to encourage if you if you want if you have an issue or uh, an agenda you want to discuss with your readers, then you need to create empathy mm-hmm. with the characters and you need good characters. And it's, it's like any other kind of writing, you need good characters. You need good plot and you need good characters. And, and I think that's it's very hard to get into a kind of if you don't want to be preaching don't be preaching exactly it it sort of sums it up I mean I'm a big massive and I've talked about him again already today uh, J.G. Ballard fan and and Ballard's apocalypses weren't always apocalypses um, and weren't always dystopias but he was very good at empathy he was very good at putting you in the situation that you couldn't imagine being in and and making it seem very real Uh, I think I talked about it this morning as well but it just happened at the moment be rereading Concrete Island, which is one of my favourite books. And um, for those who don't know, it's about a man who gets stranded on the traffic island and can't get off. Mm. And it sounds ridiculous, but he makes he sells it to you. Mm. And he very cleverly sells you the idea that he doesn't really want to get off because being trapped there gets him away out of gets him away from all these other um, requirements, all these other commitments, his responsibilities, his wife, his mistress, all this other stuff that's going on. He's a very wealthy architect, and and who becomes literally a homeless man overnight as a result of this and, and, but that's what kind of what Ballard's apocalypses were about they were about how we should enjoy apocalypses and embrace them because they allow us to escape from our responsibilities they allow us to escape from the sort of prison of society that, that forces us to conform in certain ways Following on from that, I've never thought of apocalyptic fiction as literature to try to rest I've always thought it was wishful government for the socially incapable. Not judgmental. I mean, I am a socially retarded geek here. But the whole thing is, if you wipe away society from a blank slate, then all that great big sticky mess of human interactions and the system we don't quite understand and feel marginalised by, exactly. if that's gone, then you can have fun. So <laughs> it's the flip side to the Gene Roddenberry utopian future. <laughs> yeah, and how stifling that could be, maybe. I think one of the yeah, things, sorry, I think you mentioned in the, in the intro about zombies, and I, I'm sick of zombies now. I used to, I used yeah. to quite like the zombie stuff, but now 
I'm more than bored of it, I'm really angry with it. Because what basically zombie films are, uh, uh, and zombie games in particular, um, zombie comics, Walking Dead, it's become about being able to kill your neighbours. That's really what it's about. And, and the other thing you always, always notice in the zombie um, uh, games in particular, um, a little bit in the Romero films, which I still love, but he was making other points, but there's... The, the people, take a lot back there, you're saying a lot about capitalism, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, the... Zombies always have uniforms. There's a postman, milkman, <laughs> policeman. They're identifiable. They're working class jobs. They're not middle class people. Don't wear a uniform. Middle and, and the characters usually aren't wearing a uniform. But there's this shuffling masses of people in uniforms. It looks stupid. And they wander around shopping centres. And then and, and they like music you don't like. And they're, and they're vulgar. And it's become this kind of. I see zombies now. I see this sort of horrible bourgeois allegory for how depressed the middle classes the underclass. are. Yes, yeah. 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 Well, how, how the middle class wants to create a difference from themselves and the rest. So the middle class is shrinking, right? Um, and, and, and the middle class, the role of the middle class in this country to, to, to increase an extent is leaving the country. We've been told about the Tories always tell us we mustn't upset the financial industries because they'll leave the country. They're going to leave the country anyway, right? It's not going to make sense for them to be here when they can be in Beijing or Hong Kong or um, Mumbai or somewhere and doing and doing what they're doing. They're going to leave here anyway. So, but it's kind of this kind of our role as middle class people in Britain is shrinking. And zombies to that is, is kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, I'm not a zombie, I'm not shuffling around wearing a price. I'm special. I'm special, it simply comes from the fact that people are scared the apocalypse will come from other people, but in the end the human race will destroy itself, and zombie apocalypse is nothing more simple than people destroy people. The end. It avoids all the science, all the possible ways, the big red buttons, the, the overuse of the environment, it just draws it straight down to the very simple fact that we're increasingly aware of these days that when science has managed to be all the threats to humanity, the only thing left that will be a danger to humanity is itself. And in the end, the one thing that will get us, unless we change, is who we are. And that's all the zombie yeah, I think, I think there's a, there's that, a is, that is a very interesting perspective. Right, I'm going to open this up um, to floor. So, second row back, and then gentlemen. Yes. I'm not an expert on horror fiction because it scares me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but certainly from conversations I've had with horror writers, that I would see um, that yes, shading into dark, very apocalyptic science fiction and dark fantasy um, has certainly been uh, a, a sideways shift. Due to the contraction in the classic, yeah, 80s big horror market. So, um, what, you, what you mean is science fiction is assimilating horror? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, no, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, so, I think the, the short answer is yes. Yes, <laughs> we're proud of it. <laughs> 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 Definitely, yeah. I, well, I, think, I, think I think it's the reverse. It's actually become a, a, sexual, a savage or a sexual pervert. In, you know, <laughs> right. but yeah, I think I think you. I, I, sad, sadly, I agree with Tim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I say sad
Um, but for the same reason, I don't like reading Sartre because uh, they're both clearly brilliant writers. Oh, they're so depressing. Um, and you know, Drowned World is 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 one of the books that sticks in my mind. And and it's the opposite. As Tim says, it's the opposite of becoming heroes. Everyone comes listless. And as uh, one of the Sartre books, um, um, Iron in the Heart. Uh, there's, uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's when the French uh, army are basically given up against the, the, the Nazi invasion. And I thought there's this one particular soldier. And the French soldiers are just, just despondent. They're wandering across the countryside. And there's no food. And there's, there's this one horrible scene. Okay, major spoiler, but it's not a new book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, uh, our, our protagonist is, is in, a, um, in, a, in a cattle car. Um, in, in, in a train controlled by the Wehrmacht, um, and you know you can, you can guess what his fate is likely to be. It's an open-sided cattle car, but the guy hasn't eaten for days, and he's just so listless that he cannot act. And it's a horrible book to read, but it does it brilliantly. And I found find Ballard very much like that, and it really is. It, it's, it's like um, civilization is so fragile, and so are we. Do something as simple as take away our food supply, and we're stuffed. And of course. For us, food grows in shops. Mm. Yeah. 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 So, if I can come in there, and this is, I'm not telling you you're wrong here, uh, okay. I'm just telling you that I disagree completely. <laughs> <laughs> we talk two different things, so that's fine. But, and this is what's interesting, because uh, Tim and Michael's very different readings of what we've got between. I mean, I, I had to read uh, what was it as part of my course I've just done, and I. I managed to finish it, but I was absolutely fuming because, the, to me, it was exactly the way Tim reads the zombie apocalypse. So, to me, World War Z is absolutely middle class America being horrified at all these poor brown people who are going to And obviously, it can be read very different ways. I mean, things we bring ourselves to books. I mean, this is the part of this conversation that always kind of gets alighted over because we hit the black and that's lots of fun. But um, we, we bring uh, the reading process, uh, the, the the story is emergent between the book and the reader, and you bring your worldview and have it challenged by a book, or, or, or perhaps have it have it confirmed. But the, I think it's interesting how differently two people can read that mm-hmm. same book. Now, that's why I don't want to say you're wrong, <laughs> it's because you're not, because you read it that way. Um, and I think, to a certain extent, I can't remember who, who said fiction. You know, fiction is, is predominantly, first and foremost, it's a mirror. We see ourselves in it, and we mm. see uh, we see our world in it as well. Now, when we were talking earlier about uh, about optimism in, in SF, it always, again, that always strikes me as, as chasing after something that you can't really get. You can't tell, even if you try to write a particularly optimistic and sort of, you know, come on, folks, let's all sort of team together and, and, and be problem X kind of book. You'd still find some miserable kid like me, sort of saying, yeah, well, they just want to get rid of problem X. You know? <laughs> and there's always. Uh, problem Y. <laughs> That's the only problem I right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, to the extent I can't even remember what problem I was going somewhere with that, but I can't remember. What Paul was saying about it being a mirror, and, and what I said earlier about you know zombie apocalypse as a mirror for class insecurity and economic collapse. Well, again, it, like you say, it's a mirror. It's a mirror for your times. If we've been having that, this conversation, you'd ask me the same thing in the eighties. I would say, well. Zombie apocalypse is obviously a metaphor for um, people's paranoia about AIDS. Mm, you know, yeah. you know, you, there's always something you can pl- apply it to, and mm. th- and I think that's something that apocalyptic fiction does brilliantly well. And I think that's 
um, something we should we should treasure really about science fiction in general is it reflects the time it was written. Yeah. And, and that's nothing. I hear a lot of people. I was on a panel last week and someone said to me, "You worried about your stuff dating?" I said, "No, I want my stuff to date. That, that's that's why I write it the way I do. I want people to look at it." In, 20, I would like anyone to look at it. But I want people to look at it in, in 20 years and go, well, that was written in, in 2012, you can tell, because the riots yeah. happened and, and the technology is, is illustrated in these, in, in these ways. And I think that's, it's something that we should really embrace as speculative fiction writers, is to say that we are writing about our times and yeah. not to be afraid of them. Well, I think yeah. it's not just the zombies. Um, the, the apocalypse concept is eternal. There, there's, there's always it's a classic of science fiction, right? From War of the Worlds, the, the zombies aren't really zombies. They're also the robot infestation that destroys the planet. Yeah. They're also the Nazi stormtroopers. It's the concept of something that we created that then consumes us. Ah, but um, I was thinking about you know, apocalypses I have read, <laughs> and thinking back to a lot of the apocalyptic fiction of the. 80s and 90s where an awful lot of it was bug-eyed monsters from outer space and that was the apocalypse and if you again you're thinking about the reflecting of the times when it was written yes if you want to you can look at that as a metaphor for ICBMs or you know, the threat from the skies and all the rest of it um, could anyone write a bug-eyed monsters from outer space apocalypse these days because I'm, I'm trying to think where I lost someone. There's much maligned, I feel, film. A lot of people, um, I'll say the name and people go, uh, like, District 9 is one of my favourite movies a lot. Oh, That's no. Yeah. Well, uh, well, you'll be surprised when you mention that film, a lot of people go, uh, and, uh, and, and that is a bug, bug-eyed invasion from yeah. uh, space movie, but toned in a completely brilliant, beautiful twist. And I'll tell you something very interesting that bears in mind what Paul was saying. We recently, we watched that with our teenage sons, who, of course, have grown up in a post-apartheid world, right, exactly. and they saw none of those resonances, which obviously spoke to myself and my husband, but the resonances they were seeing were relating to Islamophobia right. and okay. their worldview. Mm. And so that made for very interesting dinner table conversation, particularly since I have banned the zombie apocalypse from the subject of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess that comes back to the reason why, rather than writing about the riots, write about something set slightly out of place and it kind of defocuses it. So it's not specific, but it's something that resonates to lots of different situations. But do you think that perhaps the 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 big reason that apocalypse is always part of the human uh, imagination, sort of right from the Bible and Ragnarok and uh, through to science fiction versions and global warming now, is that it's uh, the way that we reflect on mortality as it relates to us as a civilization and as a species um, and it's just bringing that aware and so it will always be part of the imagination because of uh, because one day we're going to die uh, yeah, I think so um, about my, and sorry. now we put it through popular culture because yeah. we don't have the overarching framework. it's just the search for the answer to the question what will the end be like Mm. Well, I was just going to mention, um, you mentioned other monsters from outer space. There have been loads recently, but only in films. There's been Battleship, there's been Battle Los Angeles, and Skyline in the last couple of years. All very entertaining B-movies, but Pulp SF, which has always lagged behind literary SF. So I don't think there have been many literary SF. They're all post-9-11 movies. 
exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 They are things coming from the sky. Yeah. They're, they're films that, that titillate American audiences by showing them in June of 9-11 over and over and over. And how good the Navy is. Avengers is a 9-11, is 9-11 porn. Right, it's, <laughs> it's all right to demolish skyscrapers if the Hulk is doing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's all right to crash things into skyscrapers if the giant robotic snakes. It's just a way of feeding into that part of the American psyche and going, remember how bad that was? Oh, remember how bad that was? It just struck me that all this zombie stuff, zombies originally um, came from voodoo. Mm. Didn't they? From that yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're never used in that context anymore, are they? Like, I mean... They become this. I mean, I am legend. One of the best SF novels ever written has been made into oh, um, some films. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if only you could remember that. Uh, <laughs> only doing a quiz tonight. Um, forget this bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's telling that the um, one starring Will Smith um, changes him into zo- to zombies. They're not actually vampires anymore. Yeah. So the, the zombies have become this huge metaphor for whatever. Right. I, I was actually, I was actually in Manhattan when they were filming um, oh, the yes. Will Smith one, um, I, which was absolutely brilliant because they, um, if you down, um, I can't remember, Sixth Street, Sixth Avenue, um, there's, there's, there's uh, where the St. Patrick's Cathedral is. Um, one side of the street it was strewn with rubble and stuff oh, like that. Wow. The other side of the street there were thousands of us watching. We'll just limping along, yeah, and yeah, like zombies. This is really oh, embarrassing. Yeah. Oh, the Will, meta, the meta. Will Smith was limping along, and then the director called cut, and we all went. I saw that guy for walking. <laughs> Uh, mentioned I Am Legend, the Will Smith one. I think it's actually a bit more telling how it changed what was originally meant to be. Mm. As if you do a little bit of research, you'll find they actually meant to have it as it was in the book, in the final scene. Yeah, indeed. You see that all the monsters have a level of intelligence, doing ambushes, moving things around, mm. trying to get him into a position of where we can get them. And when they did, gave it to test audiences, they thought, this was crap, why are we the bad guys? Ah, that's interesting. The entire point of the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I, I was very, I haven't read the book, uh, I Am Legend, but one of the things I thought seeing the Will Smith film is that it's explicitly, it's a religious movie. You know, and mm. he sacrifices himself and his blood saves humanity. It's, yes. it's a Christian allegory. It's well, the book is completely the other way around. I'm the reason it's called I Am Legend is because Spoilers. <laughs> Just read it. Just read it. But, um, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, not yeah. I'm not particularly criticizing the film. I yeah. think it's a, I, I, there's a tremendous amount of religion <coughs> echoing on yeah. through Apocalypse. It's basically, um, you know, we've got it too good and we're not, we're not, we're not, you know, being miserable enough and we're going to be punished. <laughs> 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 and, and so, yes. and, and yes, well, they tend to end with redemption. Yes. This is a flood of Christmas. Oh, I'm right. Sorry, I haven't seen Sadly, you're out of time. Mm. Um, thank you, first of all, as the panel, for a very interesting conversation. Thank you for your attention and your contributions. Um, I hope, well, I've certainly got some uh, interesting new perspectives on the end of the world <laughs> to go away with. Uh, and I hope you found it interesting as well. Thank you very much. So there you have it. All sorts of interesting ideas there. We'd love to know what you think. What is it that you think it is that appeals about the end of the world as a story 
particularly in science fiction. What are your favourite stories in this genre? Please let us know what you think and we'll round up uh, some of your comments in our next episode of Points of Who. Thanks for listening. This is Impossible Podcasts. Get in touch via our website, impossiblepodcasts.com, uh, or through Facebook, Twitter, Google+. The email address is impossiblepodcasts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Impossible.